We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And this is the Apostle Paul writing. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, uh, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And... And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he was... For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, or they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we bow our hearts uh, in submission to you, we ask that you would open our ears and our eyes to see and hear your word and help us to obey it. Uh, for the gospel's sake and for Jesus, and we, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a little recap from last week, uh, as this is part two of last week's sermon. I cut it off halfway in the middle. Uh, the first thing that the first question I asked is, what is the meaning of circumcision? Because this is plays such an important part in the book of Galatians and in our text before us. And uh, we concluded that circumcision was a visible reminder of our need for God to save us. That that was the message given uh, to the Jews in the Old Testament. But the Jews turned it on its head and said that circumcision, instead of showing them their need to be saved, they turned it into a means of their salvation and equated circumcision with salvation. Then I asked another question. How did Paul's preaching to the Gentiles differ from Peter's preaching to the Jews? And we looked at samples from Peter's preaching. We concluded that um, Peter, the content of Peter's preaching was that the Jews had murdered the Messiah. And what Peter was doing was aiming at repentance because they had a false pride and they needed to see that they had a false pride and their pride had led them to uh, murder the Messiah but this murdered Messiah um, had been resurrected and would be their savior if they would put their hope in him 
And then we contrasted that with Paul's message to the uncircumcised or to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul, the content of Paul's preaching was God loves the Gentiles. They were caught in their um, in their sin. Uh, they were caught in their um, in their idolatry, and they needed to hear the message that God loves the Gentiles. They needed that hope that God would include them in His salvation. And so we saw the the uh, two different emphasis in the preaching. And the sermon must have seemed somewhat disjointed last week because I was waiting on the discussion of our freedom in Christ to explain the text that we have before us and then tie everything together. And like I said, I cut the sermon in half. So I'm continuing it this week. So I want to jump right in to this discussion of freedom. Uh, before we talk about uh, spiritual freedom and the freedom we have in Christ, I just want to mention a word or two about freedom in general. Uh, freedom, and you have an outline on the back of your bulletin if you wanted to follow along. But freedom is a fragile thing. It is a precious thing, and I think because it's so precious, it is also very fragile. Freedom is not easily gained. And once it is gained, it is easily lost. I know many of you know of Alexis de Tocqueville. He was a Frenchman that toured the United States in the 1830s. And he examined um, the freedom that we have here in America. He wrote a book called Democracy in America. He marveled at our freedom. He said that America was a unique nation, that our government, our freedom, was unique among the governments of the world. And he treasured this freedom and wrote um, glowingly of it. But then he also wrote about possible threats to our freedom. Uh, And he didn't think that the, the threats to our freedom would come from invading countries. Rather, he thought that we were our greatest threat to our freedom. He talked about two threats to our freedom. One threat was the tyranny of the majority. And by that he meant that the majority's interest would be placed so far above those who were dissenting that a dissenting individual's interest would be actively opposed. In other words, the the majority rules and because their opinion is so important, every other opinion would be swept away and pushed down and oppressed. And he called this the tyranny of the majority. And so freedom of speech, he was thinking, would be lost and and, uh, many freedoms would follow immediately after that. The other threat to freedom he called a soft despotism. And he described this as an immense protective power that would take all responsibility for everyone's happiness. And... um, Everyone should give 
credit to this immense protective power uh, and that this immense protective power should be the sole agent and judge of our happiness. He said this power would resemble parental uh, authority uh, but would try and keep people in, per- in perpetual childhood by relieving people from all the trouble of thinking and all cares of living. And so he said these would be the great threats to our democracy and to our freedom. And uh, that has been very much, these issues have been very much in the political discourse over the last several years and increasingly over the last several months. Freedom is not easily gained and once gained, it is easily lost. This is just as true for the spiritual realm as well. Jesus purchased our freedom with His precious blood, but we are surprisingly quick to give it up. The book of Galatians was not simply written to a people uh, that lived 2,000 years ago. The book of Galatians was written to that generation and every generation of Christians who have followed in their train. In fact, the church was so thoroughly had so thoroughly given up their freedom in Christ that a great reformation was needed in the 1500s, and we are equally in danger of giving up our freedom in Christ today. We are in danger of exchanging it for licentiousness and immorality, and for those of us who want to protect the church and want to protect the gospel, want to protect our freedom in Christ from the the licentiousness and immorality. It's very tempting, and we are often guilty of overreacting to the licentiousness and immorality. And what we end up doing is substitute a humanly invented cultural and religious norms and use these things to replace the grace of God. So from both sides, we're always in danger of giving up that freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom is not easily gained, and once gained, it is easily lost. I want you to look at the point on your bulletin that we have freedom in Christ. And there are two test cases that I want us to look at this morning. One here is in our text. And just to explain the text in verses 1 through 10, uh, I want to direct your attention immediately to verses 1, 3, 1, verses 1 through 3. Then after 14 years, Paul says he went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with, with him. He went up because of a revelation set before them. Uh, though privately before those who seem to be influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. Essentially what's happening here, this is Paul's second uh, trip to Jerusalem. He had gone up uh, 14 years earlier. 
this time he's going, he's taking Barnabas with him. Barnabas, however, uh, is relatively unimportant to our text. Who is most important to our text is young Titus, this recent convert. He's important uh, because... He is a Greek. He is uncircumcised. And Paul is going to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. Essentially, God had told him uh, to go to Jerusalem. And so, because God had told him, he's going in all confidence. And so, you see in verse 2, as he's going up, uh, because God told him to... Um, he's going among those who seem to be influential, but uh, he is going to flout the freedom he has in Christ before them. And he's going to do it with great confidence. He is taking uncircumcised Titus along with him. There's a very good chance that this could cause a great stink in the Jerusalem, in the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. But he's going with confidence because God told him to go. And as we move down through the passage, verses 7 through 9, Paul presented Titus to Peter, and um, he calls Peter Cephas, and later in verse 9, to John and to James, presumably also to the other apostles who were there in Jerusalem at the time. But there were people here who opposed Paul. We see him in verses 4 and 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, Paul brought Paul and Barnabas brought Timothy or Titus with them, and there were people there who said, "This man is uncircumcised; he should not be here." They opposed Paul and Barnabas, but they were not they were not members of the apostles. They were not members of the leadership. Uh, but those who were influential, in other words, the apostles, welcomed them. Verses uh, six through nine. Um, they gave them the right hand of fellowship. They recognized the work of God in Paul's ministry, and they said that Paul's ministry to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, was valid. And Paul is is uh, thankful that they gave their approval to his ministry. But then he says, out of the other side of his mouth, well, it doesn't matter what they think anyway, because God is the one who gave me this ministry. He's the one who called me. But here in this uh, text, let let me back up one second before I I start down this path. What we have here in verses um, 9 or or 7 through 9 is we have two different concerns. We have the concerns of Paul and his ministry to the uncircumcised or to the Gentiles. We have uh, Peter. John and James, the Lord's brothers, and their ministry to the circumcised, to the Jews. And what they do, even though they have two different concerns, they partner together. Paul was free to leave Titus uncircumcised. And this was huge. 
it's impossible to uh, overstate how important uh, this development was in the early church. Paul could have brought Titus. They could have bought Peter and John and James could have bought at, P, at, at, at Paul and said that Titus needed to be circumcised. And Paul would have said, God called me, God gave me the gospel, and he would have gone his way, and the Jewish church would have gone their way. But instead, there's a partnership. Um, Instead of destroying the church, it solidified it. Also, it's important to understand that this happened... Uh, This second trip of Paul to Jerusalem happened before Acts 15. What happened in Acts 15? The Jerusalem Council. It's also important to understand that it happened before Acts 16. Uh, And we'll see in one second why that's important. I believe that this visit to Jerusalem is described in Acts chapter 11, but that's neither here nor there. But let me emphasize, this happened before Acts 16. And again, why is this important? Well, in Acts 16, verses 1 through 4, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. This is when he is on one of his missionary journeys. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek they went on their way through the cities they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem and this is the decision that had been made at Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and so here's what we have we have Paul Remain, uh, leaving Titus uncircumcised, and we see that from the, the the background of the text, he would have balked at the suggestion that Titus be circumcised. But then later, after that's approved, he circumcises Timothy. He wanted Timothy to be free to minister the gospel within the cultural context of his ministry. He knew that Timothy was going to be ministering among Jews, and so he did not want anything to stand in that way. What's the difference between Titus and Timothy? Why was Titus not circumcised by Paul? For the sake of the gospel. That is the only reason Titus was not circumcised, for the sake of the gospel. Why was Timothy circumcised by Paul? For the sake of the gospel. The gospel is the controlling factor in the direction of our ministry. And every page of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches us this gospel of grace. This is huge. This tells us a lot about how we are to do ministry. This tells us a lot about our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to um, skip just a a little bit ahead in my notes and you'll see the fragile nature of Christian freedom. I want to take a few moments here before we move into our conclusion. It is so easy 
to lose our freedom in Christ. Our freedom in Christ is solid, it is secure in Jesus Christ, but it is very easy for us to lose sight of it because it is so easy for us to lose sight of the gospel. Some conflict arises in the church. The gospel takes the back seat and our freedom in Christ is compromised. Or some ministry emphasis competes with the gospel. Competes with the gospel for the church's attention. It may be and I've seen it in some churches, the importance of having personal devotions becomes of paramount importance. And you can't be a faithful believer in Jesus if you're not having your devotions every day. And that competes with the gospel of freedom. It's the freedom of the gospel in the back seat. Or it might be for some churches... The emphasis on growing the church. We've got to grow the church. We've got to add 10% more members this year than we did last. And that concern begins to overwhelm the concern for the gospel. Or it might be uh, raising a family. And raising a family is so important and it puts the gospel in the back seat. It might be uh, some distinctive doctrine. We had a, a, a person coming here to our church for some months simply because he had in his mind that um, in my theology I was a super lapsarian. And that's why he was coming. And I said, well, I'm not a super lapsarian. I'm not an infralapsarian. I'm not really sure what I am in those regards. But uh, for him, that was of paramount importance. For some it might be the style of worship and the gospel gets put in the back seat. For some it might be a political issue or social issue and the gospel gets put in the back seat. Listen, my brothers and sisters, the gospel is not simply one aspect of ministry amongst others. The gospel is not simply one truth among many. The gospel is the truth. And every time the gospel is put in the back seat or put in the passenger side seat alongside something else, our freedom in Christ is compromised. There was a church... Um, that uh, was near one of the churches that I was ministering in. And every so often, someone would get their feathers ruffled and they'd come over to our church. And, um, and a lot of people were always getting their feathers ruffled because they had such a narrow view of what it meant to be a Christian. And you would hear them when they came into our church. They espoused what I began to call a theology of altness. And what, you know, in church you ought to wear a tie. You ought to wear a coat. You ought to wear a dress. You ought to sing with, uh, with a cadence, uh, a, a beat that is slower than, than other churches might use. And, and it was this theology of oughtness. The, 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 the choir ought to be in the back. The organ ought to be in the back. You know, and they put so many constraints on what it meant to be a Christian. 
that if you were not walking in step, then you were ostracized. Even though you weren't ostracized, you felt ostracized. And so they would end up at our church. What does it mean, or what does our freedom in Christ mean for Westminster Presbyterian Church? First of all, our freedom in Christ is not centered on ourselves. The greatest threats to our freedom does not come from the outside. The encroachments of Christianity, or the encroachments on Christianity, uh, cannot take away our freedom in Christ. If the government comes in and begins making encroachments on our freedom to worship, it cannot take away our freedom in Christ. The worldliness and secularism that is always, we feel it impinging, we always feel the pressure. It can never take away our freedom in Christ. The only way we will lose our freedom in Christ is if we give it up willingly. What are some of the threats? We'll pretend we're Alexis de Tocqueville. What are some of the threats to our freedom? What are some of the things that we might give up, or or rather might cause us to give up our freedom? I think one would be pride. Thinking that we are better than other Christians. Because after all, we preach and teach the full counsel of God. We're reformed. In fact, we even take pride in our total depravity. We've got to watch that pride at all costs. We've got to repent of it continually. I think a second threat to our freedom in Christ would be fear. Our world, our nation, even the community we live in is changing around us. And it's very tempting to close ourselves off, to uh, retreat within the walls of our church, and then to overemphasize our cultural religious norms in order to keep us from being changed by the world. And that the root would be fear. I think a third issue that we always need to be careful, need to be on watch against, is our selfishness. This is our church after all. We want our church to serve us. And the world, well, it can perish as long as I'm holy. Our freedom in Christ should never be centered on ourselves. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't talk about hell an awful lot in my preaching. I do that purposely because I think hell has been misused in order to manipulate people into making a decision for Christ. And because it has been so misused, God is seen as vindictive, as capricious, as simply a mean old man 
that if you don't do what he says, he's going to squash you like a bug. In fact, Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, God's kindness is the motive that leads you toward repentance. But even though I don't talk about hell an awful lot, it is still a reality. There are people all around us here in the Brandon, Valrico, Sefner, Riverview area who are dying and they are having to stand before God without the protective clothing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There are people all around us dying and going to hell. And I believe this fact must shape our ministry more than it is at present. I believe we must be willing to make whatever changes will help us to be effective in reaching our community for Christ. Because if we are allowing, if we allow our neighbors to die and to go to hell without making a significant effort at reaching them, I think you could argue that we don't love them as Christ calls us to love them. Now I know some of you are saying, oh the pastor's talking about change. Oh no, what does that mean? Let me just use an illustration to help set your, your mind at ease in one sense. Um, you know, when you turn, I, I turn on a computer and I delete files, you know, to free up space. Um, and every now and then, you know, a, a box will pop up and it says, a warning, system, Windows System 32. And uh, it says, if you change anything in this folder, it could possibly um, cause your computer not to run properly because this apparently this Windows System 32 is, has something to do with the operating system that runs behind the uh, scenes on your computer. And it would cause the computer to crash. Well, I think that this Windows system operate, you know, this Mac people, I guess you don't have anything to, maybe can't relate, but for you Windows people, um, I believe that a church's personality is like the Windows operating system. Um, and so you start messing around with the church's personality, you're going to cause the, the church to crash like you would a computer to crash. I love Westminster's personality. I'm not looking to change the personality. Um, the furthest thing from my mind. But things that cause us or that keep us from fulfilling the Great Commission or things are ways that we put unnecessary obstacles uh, in front of people uh, who are uh, in coming to Christ, those things we have got to look at seriously. And we have got to be on a footing where Christ and the gospel is first. It must shape the direction of our ministry. We can do a lot of other things, and I love that little illustration with the ball with all the clay on it, or the, the Play-Doh. Uh, it may look nice, but it may help, may ultimately hinder us from being effective in the things that God calls us to be effective in. If we use our freedom in Christ for anything other than the gospel, 
and for anything other than the gospel transformation of the Brandon community, I believe we have turned our freedom into license. I will stand by that statement. In fact, I stand on that statement as a minister of Jesus Christ. So I want to leave you this morning. What is your commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father in our God, I ask that you would help us to keep the gospel first and foremost. Father, it's okay that we do things um, along with the gospel. But help us never, ever, ever to substitute anything for the gospel, nor add other requirements to the gospel, for it is our life. Father, I ask that you would protect us from ourselves, from our pride, from our fear, from our selfishness. Help us to take up our cross daily. Help us to die to ourselves that Christ might be all in all and that He might shine through us to a lost and dying world that He needs Him so badly. We pray in Jesus' name.